Uh, Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word today. We're going to reside in the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 3. And uh, last Sunday, I began a series entitled The Lamb's Tale, T-A-L-E, as we focus on the doctrine of the Incarnation. And today we're going to look at the second part of that. And when we talk about the Incarnation, we're talking about the doctrine that says God left heaven and put on human flesh, incarnate, put on human skin, and dwelt or tabernacled among men in the form of Jesus Christ. So today, we're going to look at this second part of a lamb's tale as we unpack the incarnation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Follow with me in your copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 9. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me or beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise your head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb in the field. And in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. So may God add his blessings today as we look at the second part of a lamb's tail. Last Sunday morning, I gave you the illustration from Max Lucado uh, in his book entitled In the Manger, where he uh, illustrated the incarnation of Christ by sharing the story about a group of squirrels that he saw outside uh, the window of his office. And he said the only way really he could ever relate to those squirrels was to become a squirrel, and he had no desire to do that. But the way God would relate to us and know us so that we could know him would be for God to become a man, which would be even lower than for man to become a squirrel. Well, today I want to share with you another illustration about the incarnation from Max Lucado. This time it's in one of his books entitled The Angel Story. And he uh, illustrates the incarnation by sharing an imaginary story uh, between God and Lucifer just before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now again, he, illust- he shares this story to illustrate the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. Listen to what Lucado writes, quote, The king walked over and reached for the book. He turned it toward Lucifer and commanded, Come, deceiver, read the name of the one who will call your bluff. 
read the name of the one who will storm your gates. Satan slowly rose off of his haunches like a wary wolf. He walked a wide circle toward the desk until he stood before the volume and read the word, Emmanuel. He muttered to himself and then spoke in a tone of disbelief, God with us? For the first time, the hooded head turned squarely toward the face of the father. No, not even you would do that. Not even you would go so far. You've never believed me, Satan. But Emmanuel, the plan is bizarre. You don't know what it's like on earth. You don't know how dark I've made it. It's putrid. It's evil. It's mine, proclaimed the king. And I will reclaim what is mine. I will become flesh. I will feel what my creatures feel. I will see what they see. But what of their sin? I will bring mercy. What of their death? I will give life. Satan stood speechless. God spoke, I love my children. Love does not take away the beloved's freedom, but love takes away fear. And Emmanuel, God with us, will leave behind a tribe of fearless children. They will not fear your hell. Satan stepped back at the thought. His retort was childish. They, they will too. I'll take away all sin. I will take away all death. And without sin and without death, you have no power. Around and around in a circle, Satan paced, clenching and unclenching his wiry fingers. When he finally stopped, he asked a question that even I was thinking. Why? Why would you do this? And the father's voice was deep and soft because I love them. End of quote. When we study about the Christmas season, you find in the Word of God that Christmas is filled with a myriad of miracles. It was a miracle when the angel Gabriel came to the young teenage girl from Nazareth named Mary. And in this annunciation, he said, Hail thou, Mary, who art highly favored. The Lord is with you, and he announces to her that she will be the human instrument used to birth God's own son into this world. That was a miracle. It was a miracle when Gabriel came to Joseph, and Joseph, not knowing for sure what to do about his wife to whom he was engaged uh, or betrothed to be married, and to find out that she was with child, and Gabriel said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take unto you Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her, listen to what he said, is of the Holy Ghost. And she will bring forth a child, and he will save his people from their sin. Truly a miracle. It was a miracle when the star appeared in the east that led the, the magi or the wise men all the way from Persia to Bethlehem where the Christ child would be. It was a miracle when the angelic host announced to the shepherds Fear not, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. There are many other miracles that I could share with you, but really all of those miracles are really just signs that point to the greatest miracle. And that was the day on Christmas when God stepped out of heaven, clothed himself in human flesh, and became Emmanuel, God with us. It has been called the miracle of miracles. The Bible explains it this way. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul said to the, to, um, uh, no, excuse me, Titus said in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's what Paul wrote to Titus. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that though Jesus was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and became fashioned in the likeness of men. That is God with skin on. God incarnate. So for the balance of our time, I want us to dig into this doctrine, just as we did last Sunday morning, the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now in Genesis chapter 3, you may read that as I shared that with you this morning, thinking, Pastor Darrell, what in the world does that have to do with the incarnation of Jesus? When you read about creation of man, the fall, the consequences of the fall, what does that have to do with the incarnation of Christ? In Genesis chapter 3, all of God's creative activity is now complete. The Bible says that uh, uh, as he moves through the creation of the world, he speaks and from his word, the universe comes into existence. He hangs the moon and the stars. He sets the earth in its orbit. And God creates everything in this universe, seen and unseen. On the sixth day of creation, God creates his crowning achievement, mankind. The Bible tells us that he took a handful of soil in the Garden of Eden, and he formed man from that soil. He breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then God created a helper for him. When Adam fell asleep, God removed one of his ribs, and from that rib, God created Eve, the mother of all living. Adam's name means dirt man. He was made from the dirt. Some would say that Adam is just a big clod, but his, his name means dirt man. Eve is the mother of all living. And God brings them together in a beautiful paradise in the Garden of Eden. And the only, the only thing they were forbidden to do in the Garden of Eden was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Day after day, we don't know how much time passes, but the serpent or Satan, Lucifer, would come by the edge of the garden and he would whisper into Eve's ear how beautiful and enticing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be, be for her to partake of. Perhaps at first she resisted, but over time she succumbed and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She was deceived. She was tricked into doing it because uh, uh, Satan would say to her, Eve, it's not going to be a problem. God doesn't care. You're really not going to die. And he began to speak to her. You see, that's just the way women are wired. They're wired audibly by what they hear. Men more so by visual, by what they see. And Satan spoke to her and he said, Eve, there's not going to be a problem with this. There's not going to be any consequence for this. So Eve takes the forbidden fruit. And then she offers it to her husband, Adam. And Adam should have been the leader in his family and said, Eve, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to follow God's will. We're going to follow God's plan. But that's not what Adam does. He goes right along with his wife, and he takes the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that she offers him. And when he does, he disobeys God and plunges himself and his entire um, lineage of the human family into sin and to disobedience and to enmity with God or hostility or animosity 
with God. Eventually, Adam and Eve have animosity toward each other. They have animosity toward God. And the perfect fellowship in the Garden of Eden had now been interrupted. Suddenly, the paradise that they lived in was no longer paradise. Instead of running to to their creator, now they ran away from their creator. In fact, when God came down in the cool of the day to fellowship, he said, Adam, where are you? And Adam ran and hid himself in the trees. He said to God, because I was afraid. And that's the first time you find fear mentioned in the Bible. It's always a consequence of sin. Well, as the realization begins to dawn of their disobedience to God, notice what happens in verse number 12. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. You see how Adam refuses to take responsibility for his own actions? He just kind of passes the buck, and he says, God, it's the woman's fault. You know, we've been doing that all, of, all ever since, haven't we, as men? It's the woman's fault. It's not my fault. Look in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, hey, it's not my fault. The serpent tricked me, and I did eat. So Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the devil, and suddenly their beautiful paradise is just turned all upside down, and fellowship with God was broken, and life would never be the same again. And it appears as though the devil has been very successful in wrecking and ruining God's crown creation, mankind. John Milton was a blind English poet, and he had written the work Um, paradise lost listen to a couple of lines of that I read this to Tina on the way to church this morning and about all she could say is oh my but it's old English and uh, you have to listen carefully to, to to catch what he is saying when he talks about what life must look like after the fall for Adam and Eve he says this with ever burning sulfur unconsumed Such place eternal justice had prepared for those rebellious. Here their prison ordained in utter darkness and their portion set as far removed from God and the light of heaven as from the center thrice to the utmost pole. Oh, how unlike the place from whence they fail. What was a beautiful paradise was now upside down. Nothing at all like God had originally created it to be. The Bible says in the New Testament, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The seeds of disobedience that Adam and Eve had sown was now taken root and was going to bring a harvest of trouble for humanity. And as God surveys the moral wreckage, the backwash of what had left behind with Adam and Eve's disobedient, you're going to notice in these passages that he pronounces two curses, one on the serpent and one on the earth. Let me show you. Look in verse number, um, verse number 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, what did he do? He tricked Eve. 
He deceived her. He, uh, he, he enticed her to fall. Because you've done this, look at this. You are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. So the serpent experienced the curse from God. Now apparently the serpent was much different before the fall than what we think about today when we think about a serpent or a snake slithering across the ground. Apparently before the fall the serpent walked uprightly. Apparently that uh, before the fall the serpent was a beautiful uh, creature, attractive, enticing. Because think about it for a moment. If he came by the Garden of Eden regularly to try to get Eve to, to stray away from God, and had he been a hideous looking monstrosity, the first time she saw him, she would have been repulsed and she would have ran from that, correct? But she didn't run from that. She listened. And the more she listened, the more she was drawn into what he was saying. So I would say that his outward appearance probably was beautiful. Certainly his words were enticing. His words were beautiful. And he used those words to draw her and to get her to be lured away from God. And because of that, the Lord says to the serpent, you are now going to be cursed above all animals. You're going to crawl on your belly for the remainder of days, and you're going to eat dust from the road for the remainder of your life. So God pronounces a curse on the serpent. Secondly, you'll note that he produce, uh, uh, pronounces a curse on the earth. Look in verse number 17, if you will drop down there for a moment. To Adam he said, because you've hearkened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree that I commanded you saying that you should not eat of it. Now look at this. You may want to underline this. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all of your life, and thorns and thistles, thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Where plant life once thrived before the fall, after the fall it was constant battle with weeds, competing for the nutrients in the soil that would choke the life out of life-giving crops. Why is it in your garden you don't have to plant weeds? Right? They're just, they're just there, right? You have to get the weeds out. You have to care for your plants and properly plant them and take care of them and fertilize them and till them and, and give them the nutrients they need. And then you've got to pull those choking weeds away from them. Why can it not just be a garden weed-free? Well, before the fall, it was weed-free. After the fall, weeds were part of the curse of the planet now. And you don't have to plant weeds. They will grow when nothing else will grow. Isn't that right? And it's part of the curse that God pronounced on the earth. So he gives a curse to Satan and a curse to the earth. But I say that to say this. I want you to note that God does not pronounce a curse on Adam and Eve. That's very important. Let me say that again. Adam and Eve, you will not find in this text, you will not find that God said, cursed are you, Adam, or cursed are you, Eve. He curses the serpent. He'll crawl on his belly from now on. He cursed the earth in that it'll bring forth weeds and thorns and thistles. The animal life will, will fight with each other, be all kinds of conflict. But he never pronounces a curse on Adam or Eve. Satan, yes. The earth, yes. Humanity, no. 
because we don't live cursed. Really what God does, now listen carefully, what he does here is rather than pronouncing a curse on humanity, he announces a promise to humanity. Let me say that again. Rather than pronouncing a curse on humanity, he announces a promise. You see, I never cease to be amazed about the love and the grace of God. When the fall took place, God could have just wiped Adam and Eve off the, off the, off the planet Earth. But what does he do? In love and grace, he reaches out to them. He takes the, the, the coverings that they made for themselves, the fig leaves, and he replaces it with something more dignified, uh, animal skins to cover their shame. He even takes them outside the Garden of Eden and refuses to allow them back in. In fact, if you continue to read chapter 3 all the way through the balance of the chapter, you will find that he says that he puts flaming uh, cherubim in front of the Garden of Eden, in front of the entrance, to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back in. You say, well, pastor, that's, that's judgment. That's not grace. Oh, no, no, no. Listen, that is grace. Because God wanted to make sure that Adam and Eve did not get back into the Garden of Eden in their fallen condition, eat of the tree of life, and forever live in a fallen condition. God removed them from Eden, kept them from eating the tree of life until his plan to redeem them back into his family finally came to fruition. So rather than pronouncing a curse on humanity, he announces a promise. What is the promise? Look in verse number 15. If you're listening, say amen. <clears throat> Look what God says. I will put enmity between thee. Now he's talking to the, to the serpent here. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There is a, a word that theologians use to describe this passage. It's Latin. It is called Proto-Evangelion. And what that means is the first gospel. Proto means first. A prototype is the first of something that is made. Proto-Evangelium, the first evangelization or the first evangelism. When you, when you evangelize, you're sharing the good news. You're telling others about the good news of the gospel. So the proto-evangelion is the first gospel. In other words, God is making a promise to the human family, not, not going to put them under a curse. God is making a promise to the human family. Now listen carefully. And I hope we'll unravel this as we move through it. That, as, that his promise to humanity is this, that he's going to step out of heaven, that he will become God incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would go to the cross, and on the cross he would take the curse that we should have been given in Genesis 3. That he would allow his own son to be punished for the sin debt of the world. That's why he didn't curse Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. 
He was waiting for the time when his son, God in the flesh, would be born on Christmas morning and then ultimately go to the Via Della Rosa, to the way of suffering, to the hill of Golgotha, where God would lay all of the sins of all of mankind upon the shoulders of his son, and the Bible would say, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And the curse that we should have had in Genesis 3 was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want you to look in that 15th verse and I want you to circle that word enmity. Some translations use the word hostility, animosity. I will put, God says, as he's talking to the devil... I will put hostility between you and the offspring of the woman. Now, there are really two ways of of seeing this. First of all, as the Bible talks about the offspring of the woman, firstly, it is a a reference to uh, the lineage of people who would be believers. So you trace the lineage of patriarchs all through the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and, and Samuel and all of the, all the Old Testament prophets, all the way up to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are the believers who follow God. And then the offspring or the seed of Satan or of the serpent would be the unbelievers, those who work to thwart the plan of God, those who work to try to frustrate the work of God. You see it in the Old Testament when Pharaoh had issued the order to kill all the male babies. You remember he was trying to kill Moses, but, but in the grand scheme of things, he was trying to pre- prevent Jesus from ever being born in Bethlehem. And then you come to the New Testament, you find it again when Herod issued the decree that all male babies under the age of two were to be killed. Again, it was an attempt to try to stop Jesus from ever coming and going to the cross of Calvary. When Jesus did come, when he did live, he was opposed by the Pharisees every step. Even in his inner circle, Judas Iscariot, for 30 pieces of silver, betrays Jesus with a kiss and turns him over to his executioners. So all along the way, God has his work and his people doing his work, and the devil has his work and his people who are trying to thwart the work of God. That's why I always say, if you want to do anything for God, Uh, The devil will never make it easy for you. He'll never roll out the red carpet for you. If you want to make a difference from God, uh, for God, he's going to work to to frustrate that, to thwart that, to get you to give up, to get you to quit. And he'll bring all kinds of obstacles in your path because he wants you to quit and to give up on the Lord. Well, so the Lord says, I'm going to put hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the man. But let's go a little bit deeper. Again, back to verse number 15. He says, I'll put enmity, now notice this, between you and the woman. Between you, devil, your seed, and her seed. Your offspring and her offspring. Where are we going with this? The reference to her seed is very interesting. Because biologically speaking, Uh, The woman uh, has the egg and, and, and the man has the seed. But yet the Bible uses it in terms here as if, when speaking to Eve, that she would have the seed. Why does he do that? 
because it is a reference, listen carefully now, it is a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus. When you and I were born, every one of us, we were born through the union of a man and a woman. When Jesus was born, he was, uh, uh, the Virgin Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of God, and she was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit without the natural use of a man. And though she doesn't have the seed, that's why God refers to it this way, that there would be such hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. You see, there, there are really two fundamental mysteries in our Christian faith that create quite a lot of attention and have done so over the uh, history of Christianity. Uh, the first one is the Trinity. How do you explain God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three being one? I've heard all kinds of analogies. It's like an egg. You have the shell, you have the yolk, and you have the, the white. But that doesn't describe the Trinity at all because the shell, the yolk, and the white are parts of an egg. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're not parts of God. They're each God, 100% God. I've heard it described as water. You freeze it, it is ice. You heat it, it's steam. That doesn't describe the Trinity at all because it's each in a different state. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three, but there are one. That's what the, what the Bible says. These three are one. God in heaven became Emmanuel, God with us. When Emmanuel, God with us, died on the cross, ascended back to God the Father, in the form of the Holy Spirit returns to indwell the believers. So the Trinity is a complicated topic. And then the second one is this idea of the incarnation. The Bible says about God that God is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful, right? So how can an all-powerful God live or be born in a, in a man's body, and that body not be all-powerful. Jesus had physical human limitations. God is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything. But as Jesus, the Bible says he, he grew in wisdom, that's intellectually. He grew in stature, that is physically. He grew in favor with man, that is socially. He grew in favor with God, that is spiritually. So Jesus went through that maturation process, that maturing process, from a child into adulthood. And all the time, God, who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere at one time, lived in the body of Jesus. How is that possible? It is not like Jesus was half God and half man. No. It's not like he was 90% God and 10% man or 90% man and 10% God. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. We call that the hypostatic union. Not a part, not a portion of. The Bible says in the book of Colossians, that in Jesus dwelt the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, meaning the complete totality and essence of who God is, was wrapped up in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger in Bethlehem. Psalm 139 says, You formed me 
in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. That's one of many reasons why we believe in the sanctity of human life. Because we believe that every child is formed by God in the womb of their mother and they have a right to live. They have a right to live because they're created in the image of God. When Jesus was being formed, listen, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, a miracle was taking place. God was preparing a perfect body that he was going to inhabit when this baby would be delivered. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you have prepared a body for me. So God left heaven, confined himself to the womb of Virgin Mary, and on the very first Christmas morning, Emmanuel, God with us, was birthed in a cattle stable, wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger as God's gift to this world. The Bible says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. John said, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is, the, the infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The almighty became a helpless baby. And the king of the universe was born in a stable. So, the Lord says to the devil, I'm going to put hostility between your offspring and the offspring, not of the man, but of the woman. And usually, you know, you read scripture, what you find is that children are the offspring of their father. But God doesn't say that. I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the offspring of the woman. It is, again, a reference to the Conception of Mary without the natural use of a man. Listen, who would have ever, pardon my vernacular, who would have ever thunk it, right? That all the way back in Genesis 3, as God completes his creative activity and Adam and Eve sin and rebel toward God, that he has already laid out the blueprints for how he's going to bring them back into his family. Christmas was not an afterthought. It was not a, oh yeah, now I need to do something to remedy that. Listen, before God ever created us, he knew we'd rebel, and he loved us enough to create us anyway. I always say it's like a parent having children. We know and believe that when we have children, we're not naive enough to believe that they're never going to disappoint us and never going to do something that's wrong or something that we don't approve of, but yet we have them anyway because we want to show love. And God knew that we would fail him and that we would sin against him, but he wanted to shower us with his love and with his grace, and with his mercy, and with his, and with his love. So he says he's going to put hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. But that's not all he says about this. Look at how he concludes this 15th verse. Remember I told you it's not a pronouncement of judgment, but an announcement of promise? Look at what he says in 15. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now look at this. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When Jesus lived and carried his cross to Calvary, 
when he was turned over to the uh, angry mob and crucified for all the world to see on the hill in Jerusalem, Calvary, hanging between heaven and earth as though he had been rejected by both, this prophecy would be fulfilled in his life. That Satan would bruise the heel of Jesus, Emmanuel. It was said that when criminals were crucified, that ultimately they died of asphyxiation, meaning that they would have to lift themselves up on the cross to get more air into their lungs. And finally, after a time of doing that so often, in utter exhaustion, they could no longer lift themselves up and get another breath. And their lungs would fill with fluid and they would ultimately smother or suffocate. And that criminals on the cross, in order to catch another breath, would dig their heels into the cross to lift themselves up for one more breath just as long as they could. And that when an individual from crucifixion had been removed from the cross, that their heels were just terribly bruised and mangled. Perhaps that's a reference to that. That Satan, with all of his, with all of his, his, his boisterous, intimidating language, could only bruise the heel of the Lord Jesus. But now I would imagine when they took him off the cross that day and they wrapped his body in a linen garment, put him in the tomb, and they rolled the stone over the entranceway, I would imagine that the devil thought that he had won, don't you? I would imagine that the devil thought finally he had once and for all ruined God's crowned creation, and that's how he would use it to get back to God, to attack God by ruining his creation. And he thought that Jesus was done for. But on Easter Sunday, listen, on Easter Sunday, the stone was rolled out of the way. Jesus came out of that tomb very much alive. And when he did, I want you to know he crushed the head of Satan with his resurrection. Amen, church? He crushed the head of Satan. The Bible says he put him to open shame and he crushed his head, defeated him on the cross of Calvary and the glorious resurrection of Jesus from the grave. That's the proto-evangelion. That's the good news that the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, Satan may think he won, but I want you to know ultimately God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has crushed his head. Now you may think, well, why in the world does the devil seem like he's winning today? Listen, he does look like he's winning, but it ain't over till it's over. Amen? And we've read the book, and we know how it's going to end. And one of these days, after he has already been chained in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, he will be brought back, and the Bible says once and for all forever, the devil will be cast into the lake a fire that burns with brimstone forever and forever and forever. So, the entire reason for Christmas is the love of God. That God loves you so much that he wants to know you and wants you to know him. If God was not interested in you, he would not have created you. But you exist today because God wants to know you. And wants you to know him. So much so that on Christmas, he knew we couldn't come to him. He knew we couldn't reach up there. 
God in his love and his grace stepped down out of heaven, was birthed in a cattle stall in Bethlehem, and became Emmanuel, God with us. So it's a beautiful thing to reflect on the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, but the real question of Christmas is this. Has Jesus been born in your heart? Has he really been born in your life? If you're here and you've never made that decision for him, you're missing Christmas. Not just this Christmas, you're missing Christmas for all eternity and what it was really meant to be. God who would come to give you life. And what we do is we open our heart and life say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my heart and life and save me. And when we do that, the Bible says that we, come up, we become a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. So if you've never done that, my prayer is during this hymn of invitation that you would make that decision to let Jesus be born in your heart this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on Genesis 3, we can't help but to stand in awe of the beauty, but yet the simplicity, and also at the same time the profound nature of your word. All the way back when you had created the universe, you had already formulated the plans to bring mankind back into a right relationship. And everything that we wrecked and ruined was all placed on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. He nailed it to the cross, died, and in his death, took all of our death, and rose again and said, because I live, you'll live also. So as we have this time of invitation, we invite people to make decisions. There may be someone here today who wants to come and say, Pastor Darrell, I've never been saved, but I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior today. I pray they would come. Maybe someone listening through the Internet or on our, our television broadcast, and they would say, I've never been saved. God, I pray that you'd speak to them right now. Let them know that whosoever will can call on the name of the Lord and that you're not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I pray, Lord, even at this moment, that they would turn their heart to you and let Jesus be born in their lives on Christmas. So take the invitation and use it in a way that will honor you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.